Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727 Seven five zero one ninety ninety. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. You may be owed some money. After nine one one and four one one, call five four one. That's seven two seven five four one one seven four one. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my twenty eight years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call seven two seven five four one one seven four one. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. James Darren's crazy about cars and Pamela Tiffin. Pamela Tiffin's crazy about James Darren in and out of cars. Doug McClure's crazy about Joni Summers. And Joni Summers' crazy about Bobby Darren's new song hits. They get you where the fun and action are every time they grab a wheel or a girl. Any, I'll count to five and I'll break down this door, do you hear me? Go back to your turbans and, and marry them for all I care. I'm glad you showed you true colors before we were married. I'm grateful to you. Really, I am. And don't you come running after me or I will call the police. Hey. I'm sorry, sir. The Lively Set takes you where the real action is in romance, in racing. See Dragsters race at three miles a minute. See the jet-propelled J-47. See the Bonneville World Speed Record Run. See the world's first turbine car, the car of tomorrow and the youth of today, in the famous Tri-State Endurance Race. A scream first. See international speed kings in action. Mickey Thompson, Duane Carter, Billy Krause, James Nelson, and Ron Miller. This is the lively set. Will you please not disturb us? Hello? If my daughter weren't here, I'd tell you exactly what I think of you. Mr. Manning, will you get off this phone and put Edie on? You lower your voice or I'll punch you in the nose. That's right. I'd like to win that race myself. I could use $20,000. What are you going to enter with? A wheelbarrow? And sell me the streamliner and the chassis from the stocker. I'd rather sell that stuff for junk first. Youth challenges the future down a thousand tire screaming miles of danger. Hey, Las Vegas, here we are! <laughs> you live it up. You laugh it up. You love it up. And now. Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Nothing up my sleeve. Presto! <laughs> no doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. 
Hey, this is Danny the Count Coker from Counting Cars out here in Las Vegas, and I love listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you better listen to them, too. Welcome, you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google Tan Talk 1340.com, and you can see me live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you miss any of our 560 past shows, check out Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Good evening, Tommy. And counting. And counting to 561. And I enjoyed the anniversary show via YouTube last week, by the way. Oh, you did? Well, well thank you for tuning in. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, that's hard to, you know, it's... You know, sometimes we, we get lucky and we, we had some other things planned and it didn't quite work out, but no worries. Well, uh, we, we did okay. And the fact that we're on the air 11 years is pretty doggone good. Eleven years ago, I had no idea where I was going to be. I, you know, when I sat here, May thirteenth, I was sitting out here. I tell the story every every anniversary show, but I was sitting out there, and our buddy Lee was uh, sitting where you are, and I was supposed to go on at two o'clock, and then I chickened three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock, six o'clock. Oh, really? Yeah, and then Lee goes, hey, look, kid, you got to, like, uh, you know, poop or get off the potty here, you know? I mean, it's 7 o'clock, and uh, you're, you're the last show. But there weren't any shows. There was just, you know, uh, music of your life. And actually, there was one or two shows in the meantime. But at any rate, uh, then finally, he says, look, it's, you're just sitting there staring at me. There's nobody there. Little do you realize that, you know, we're in the Tampa Bay area. we got 4 million listeners, potentially. Or we got one, one of the two. Anywhere between one and four million. How about does that sound right? That's so what you had a little used. stage fright there. In the I beginning. had stage. Yeah, you actually do. You know, you, I mean, now it's like it's second nature. You know, I don't think anything of it. You know, and actually, what was really good is the whole thing that came out of this thing. I was MC for uh, a number of events over the years. Uh, also, uh, you know, festivals of speed. So it kind of helps you get rid of your stage fright a little bit and your that insecurity. Of course, my mom. When I used to do drama when I was a kid, mom would say, "Just stare at the audience and just pretend you're staring at a cabbage patch." I said that was easy for you to say. Let's see, what was I? I was in fourth grade, and we did Mary Poppins. And I had a couple roles that I had to play, but I chickened out. So the only thing I did is read, like, the little caption, the little scenes, set up the scenes in between sets, right? And, uh, and I was nervous as could be and uh, literally scared, fright, I mean, frightened. And, uh, and then, then my mom said, you're going to drama school. So I did. I went to drama school. Hey, don't tell anybody, but you know what my mom did? Because I was a klutzy little kid. Don't tell anybody. But my mom sent me to ballet. <laughs> wow, really? No, I'm kidding, because I was kind of a klutz when I was a kid, you know, and my uh, um, my sister was taking ballet. We took piano, because my dad was a pianist, so I played piano when I was a kid. My sister was much better at My sister was better at everything that I did. I mean, she was better at in school. She didn't have to study, read, nothing, just like through osmosis. She was, you know, brainiac at, you know, Dean's List all the time. And that she stuff. older or younger than you? She was younger than me by a year and a half. Ooh, and, that's even worse, huh? And no big deal. You know, I, was, I didn't have an issue with it, you know. And, uh, and, and, you know, so my mom thought, well, you know, maybe this will help you be less clumsy. And your sister's there anyway. And... 
The other thing I used to get into was I used to get into scraps every once in a while. I grew up in a small northern town in California. When I went to San Francisco, it was a little different because there was, you know, the civil rights crap was going on back in those days. So we'd get picked on by the um, the other crowd. Because so, you were a ballet dancer? No, not because I was a ballet dancer. Oh, okay. <laughs> a belly dance. No, I mean, just because ballet. I said ballet. I know, I know, I know. I'm just, I'm just playing on words here. But because I was, uh, I was uh, a small town kid, let's just say. But see, the thing was, is you know, in our neighborhood, you know, if you got pushed around, you just inherently, you just kind of, you know, stuck up for your guns, and it didn't matter who you were, what color you were, anything like that. Well, in San Francisco, it didn't work like that. So. After getting in a few scraps, fights, if you will, coming home a little bloody, my mom said, all right, it's time for you to go learn self-defense. So she sent me to judo, and I was very good at that. Much better much better at judo than I was ballet, I might add. But at any rate... Well, she was always trying to improve you. Yes, she was. Yes, she was. Well, you know, it's funny, because I had, I had very natural athletic ability. I was very good athletic, athletically, but I never went out for sports. That was not my thing. I was a very strong swimmer which is something I just inherently gravitated to. And I was very good at um, martial arts, obviously. And then uh, because we lived up in the hills, we were climbing all the time. We're kids. You know, we're just roughing it all the time. That's just what you did back then. You know, we didn't sit home and we didn't have these goofy little things, these little, like a bunch of little weenies and sissies and little girls that they are today sitting behind a computer hiding there and bullying each other. And back in my day, you bullied somebody, step outside. Let's, uh, I call you out right now. Let's settle it like men. You know, that's how, that's what, that's what you did. You know, and uh, so anyway, long and short of it is uh, I had fun growing up when I was a kid. It was fun because, you know, we were outdoors almost all the time. I mean, could you when you were a kid, I couldn't wait to get home after school. You know, I'd do a little homework real quick. And my mom would turn me loose and go out and you'd play in a sandlot a little bit. And then I'd get on my bicycle. I loved riding my bicycle. And I'd head for the hills, meet a bunch of guys. And we used to climb. We had caves up there. We would go into caves. We'd climb trees. We'd climb the rocks. We just did all that kind of outdoor stuff. That was fun. You know, a little pushing, shoving, and stuff like that, you know. And it was just a blast, you know. I played, played uh, ball. You know, obviously, every kid played dodgeball. You played uh, baseball. You, or throw the football around a little bit. I mean, it's all, you know, kid stuff, sandlot stuff, you know. And uh, it was a lot of fun, I mean, growing up. You know, today, these kids have no idea. They don't, you know, they're not physical, you know. And we were back in those days. And we weren't girlified like they are today. So, you know, it was, that's just the way it was. But anyway, so... How did I get on the subject? I just went totally off tangent. Was this a car show? I think I was talking about, I don't know. I, and then when I moved to Florida in 1971, we had the beach. Of course, I'm from Marin County, so we've always had coastal. We've always, I've always been on the coast. And I've always, uh, you know, uh, beached a little bit, you know, did a little surfing, stuff like that. When we went to the, to the surf area, surf, uh, to uh, Santa Cruz, places like that. Um, Stinson Beach, which you didn't really want to go to too much because they had a lot of sharks up there. So nobody went out in the water past three feet. Little did anybody realize sharks had come into two feet, you know. So, uh, but we had some nasty stuff out there. And when I got to Florida, you know, it was like, this is really a cool beach. I really dug it, you know. I mean, here you're walking on the beach, got sugar sand and clear water beach. You just grab your fishing pole, just go out there and fish. It was fun. We used to, on the seawalls, we didn't have seawalls where I grew up, okay? We had shorelines. So here are the seawalls, you know, if you lived on the water, you know, that was kind of cool. You just sit there and throw a line in the water and walk along the shoreline, grab a bag of shrimp and, or, you know, take your net, catch minnows right there. It was a blast. I mean, Florida was pretty cool back then. really was. Now, with the price of real estate and like that, you can't go anywhere anymore, you know? And, uh and you have to have a fishing license? Are you kidding me? A fishing license? Come on. Anyway, uh, Florida's cool. So where am I going with this? 
561 shows as of today. We've got a very special guest for you coming on. Alumni guest has been on my show uh, many times before. He's a good friend of mine and uh, should be a fairly intellectual um, conversation. As a matter of fact, this gentleman is also from Marin County. He's from Sausalito. Okay, so I'm from San Rafael and Sausalito is like four cities down just before you get to the Golden Gate Bridge, last city before you get to the Golden Gate Bridge, going into San Francisco. Beautiful little town. Pretty cool. Anyway, Tommy, I think you need to fire up the stereo. And uh, I did go look at some cool cars this week. Where was I? I was, uh, where was I? I wasn't, wasn't really a junkyard. It was kind of a junkyard. And there were some old cars in there. I'm trying to think. I think I even took pictures of it. Um, you know, I, I, I go off tangent every once in a while, you know, and I see something and, and I, you know, on weekends it's just kind of fun to drive around. Sometimes during the week if I have to run some errands, but I'm um, trying to think where it was. There was some cool old cars in there and I thought that was pretty neat and I was going to talk about it, but my mind went. You know, see, it's the sign of Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, age. Uh, it's just a combination of all. Senility. Senility. Um, I don't know. It's one of those things. Hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Tommy's going to play a song for you. Uh, yeah, guess which one? Man, I'll tell you what. I just wrote it down, and I can't even remember. Is it for what it's worth? How Cosby's? about you didn't write it down? <laughs> I did or did not? No? Are you serious? What are you playing? Uh, how about for what it's worth, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young? Let's go play with that one. I don't know why I was on a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. How about some Rolling Stones? <laughs> Rolling Stones? Uh, nah. Well, I'm pulling it out from the 60s, at least. Uh, well, no, no, no. See if you can go find... Uh, uh, CS whatever or something like that. I'll try to I'll try to talk while you're trying to find it. You might have to boob tube it. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, old cars. So what was this that I saw? I was in uh, there was an old Nash in there. There was something in there I hadn't seen in a long time. Oh, I know what it was. It was a '59 Ranchero. There's something you don't see every day. And Ford came out with the Ranchero before Chevrolet came out with the El Camino. The Ford Ranchero, I believe, if I remember correctly, 1957, 58, pretty much the same car. 59 was redesigned, one-year-only car. And then in 1960, they tinyfied the car, teenified it, tinyfied it, and just made it a little based on a little Ranchero. Uh, I mean, based on a Falcon. That was kind of an ADB little car. And, of course, the Falcon is, you know, the Ford's real Conobox, kind of a set up to kind of compete with Chevrolet's Corvair because it was like in the late 50s, the beginning of, you know, the European car, you know, invasion, primarily the Volkswagen, which really was a, a great little car for the money. Everybody had a bug. Did you find it for what it's worth? Crosby Stills, Nash & Young? And uh, it might be on that other computer. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Buffalo Springfield. That's it. Buffalo Springfield. I forgot about those guys. That was, man, that was, yeah, that was before CS... Our Crosby Stills. Anyway, hey, here's a little Buffalo Springfield. Something here. Yeah, something's happening here. I'm losing my mind. All right, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio Cards on Touch That Now. We'll be right back. <laughs> There's a man with a gun over there telling me I got to beware. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Battle lines being drawn Nobody's right If everybody's wrong 
Young people speak in their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind Every time we stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down What a field day for the heat A thousand people in the street Singing songs and carrying signs Mostly say hooray for us Come enjoy the best brews in Tampa Bay at Dunedin Brewery. Known as Florida's oldest microbrewery, they are always working to create a unique variety of craft beers for every taste. In addition, Dunedin Brewery features a full menu, including everything from their famous wings, burgers, salads, flatbreads, and more. Don't forget about their live music, including the Wednesday Night Players Jam. That's Dunedin Brewery, 937 Douglas Avenue in downtown Dunedin. Visit them online at dunedinbrewery.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than flacarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, flacarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at flacarshows.com. We're back and you're tuning into Nostalgic Gaming Cars as I'm trying to find a set of earphones that work here because somehow we get these guys that use the show and they just don't appreciate our equipment around here. Anyway, um, yeah, well, so the 59 Rand Cheryl, we were talking about that. And then uh, let's see, what's coming up as far as shows? Well, anyway, first off, I forgot to mention that uh, the other day was Memorial Day. And, uh, you know, hats off to all the soldiers and all the. Uh, guys that have uh, put themselves on the front line for us. That's um, pretty remarkable. And um, my hat's off to those guys. Um, at any rate, and let us not forget. Right, Tommy? And uh, let's see, what's coming up? The summer's here. And, uh, you know, some of these car shows, um, the big one that's coming up in August is the uh, Monterey Collective Car Week, and we're really looking forward to that. Um, I'm not sure what the flying situation is going to be, but this year I actually thought about driving up there. But my problem is, is if I drive out there, and even though it's a four-day drive, three-and-a-half-day drive, it'll take me a month. Because, <laughs> you know, I might say, yeah, all right, so if I go leave here, point A, go up to I-10, head out, go north, uh, on 85 or 101 to San Francisco area. I might end up going by way of North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Oregon, back over to Idaho, down to uh, Nevada, back up to Northern California, and back down in search and quest of cars. There's a gentleman that uh, just recently um, I talked to him and he's a big Porsche guy. He calls himself a treasure hunter, and that's something I've always wanted to do. I've always kind of done it on a small scale, you know, beat around the bush and wind up in junkyards and garages and stuff like that. And, and it's 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 always exciting. 
Um, but I'm going to have this gentleman come on the show here in a couple of weeks. And he most recently wound up in a garage and discovered the rear transaxle that came out of James Dean's 1955 uh, Porsche um, 550. And it was put on bring a trailer. And it now ordinarily, the, uh, a 550 Spider is a three to four million, five million dollar car. Uh, one recently surfaced uh, out west, it was in a storage unit for a number of years. The whole car brought, I'm told, amounts of money, probably in the four or five million dollar range. And a very unique car with very interesting race history. But this transaxle sold for 385, 300 and some thousand dollars. So we're going to have him on the show and he's going to tell us about some of the unique things and why that particular transmission was worth so much money. In the meantime, I think what Tommy's going to do is go ahead and fire up the stereo for us and we're going to get our guests on the line. And we're going to talk about some other interesting things this evening. And uh, But remember, if you want to find out for some of the most fascinating, legendary names in motorsports and people and stories and all that good stuff, Check out Nostalgic Radio and Cars here. Hey, you're tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Here's a little Jim Croce. He got a tattoo on his arm, I said, baby. He got another one that just say, hey. Whatever Sunday afternoon, he is a dirt track demon in a 57 Chevrolet. Oh, rapid roar, that stock car boy. He the bells driver in the land. He say that he learned to race a stock car by running shine out of Alabama. Demolition Derby and the figure eight It's easy money on the bank Compared to running from the man In Oklahoma City with a five on a gallon tank Oh, rapid roar, that stock car boy He ain't too much to believe You know he always got an extra pack of cigarettes Rolled up in his t-shirt sleeve He got a tattoo on his arm I say, baby, he got another one that just say, hey in Sunday afternoon, he is a dead track demon in a 57 Chevrolet. Hey, Ron's so cool, that racing fool, he don't know what fear's about. He do 130 mile an hour, smiling at the camera with a toothpick in his mouth. He got a girl back home named Dixie Dawn, but he got honeys all along the way. Then you ought to hit him screaming for that dead track demon in a 57 Chevrolet. Oh, rapid roar, that stock car boy, he ain't too much to believe. You know he always got an extra pack of cigarettes, roll up in his t-shirt sleeve. He got a tattoo on his arm, I said, baby, he got another one that just say, hey. But every Sunday afternoon, he is a dead track demon in a 57 Chevrolet. me crazy when you start buying pieces you don't know anything about. Enjoyment's enjoyment, Sandy. Don't worry about it. All right, all right. Tommy. Tommy, for God's sakes, come on. We're late as it is. All right, Sandy. Is that one of those red Italian things? One of those red Italian things. Hey, this is Chip Foos, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Rock on.
All right, we're back, and you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman's been on our show many, 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 many times. He's a good friend of mine. He's an alumni guest, and he's also one of the most prolific car designers that I know of. I'm delighted to welcome back my good friend, Peter Brock. Peter, how are you? Hey, good evening. How are you doing? Pretty good. We're in sunny Florida. How's sunny Las Vegas? Well, it's about 102 out here, and it's absolutely beautiful. I'm kind of a lizard, so I like this hot weather. <laughs> okay. How's the trailer business? We are doing gangbusters out here. Uh, it's surprising. You know, we thought the COVID thing would kind of slow us down a little bit, but actually we're, uh, we're going flat out. We usually try to keep two or three in stock so we can deliver really quickly, and we're actually about uh, – Oh, eight weeks back ordered right now. Wow. Do you have a help problem out there like the rest of the country? It doesn't seem to be as much out here. Um, I think that uh, people take this whole situation more realistically. They understand that it can be very serious, but it's uh, not quite what it seems to be as far as how it's made out to the public. As a, definitely there's some political... Uh, machinations going on it to keep everybody in fear, but uh, uh, it's not that it doesn't exist because I've had several friends that have been uh, uh, struck with it, And but the recovery rate's very good and uh, so that's all we can say. Okay. Well, tonight what I wanted to talk about a little bit is uh, we just came off Amelia Island. I saw you there briefly and I know you were real busy and stuff. And um, but there was the the thing that I always get in that in, interests me is um, the interesting car designs. I mean, one of the cars that stood out was obviously the uh, and the featured mark, which was Hispano Suiza. Yes. And the Xenia, I think they call it, the Xenia Coupe. Yes, that's been uh, exhibited several different places. Yeah, it's quite an interesting car for its era. So, what what's your thoughts on them? When you look at cars like the Xenia. And then you look at the stuff that we got today, and in its day, and that was, I think, what, 36, 37 when that car came out? Yeah, I think that's about right. And, you know, when you look back that far, that's an incredibly advanced automobile for its time. And you always have to judge design on the period that it, uh, that it came out and what its contemporaries were. So it was way, way ahead of what everybody else was thinking of at the time. In your experiences, and when when you were at the art center, and you were just and you were going through design, and obviously cars was was your thing. Did in in some of your classes, did they revert back to styles and designs uh, coming? You know, uh, at the beginning of, of the the the, uh, the the hundred year period there, when when the turn of the century, when cars were being built, did they cite? very unusual designs and use those as, as examples in class? Well, I was very fortunate to have a, an instructor named Strother McMinn who was very, very uh, cognizant of history. And there were several designers. Uh, Dave Hulls, for example, at General Motors was probably one of the great designers that had a great respect for the cars of the classics and understood the whole history of automotive design. Uh, a lot of the way uh, school is taught today um, there's not a lot of uh, respect for what came before. Everybody's trying to look far ahead, and my feeling is that you can't under you can't really look ahead unless you understand what came before. And of course, you have to understand the whole 
history of engineering and how cars came to be and and what the development was. Uh, for example, I just did a piece for uh, Classic uh, Motorsports Classic Classic uh, Motorsports Magazine on a car that was designed clear back in uh, 1912 by uh, a group of of uh, Frenchmen and they completely broke away from what had been done in the early 1900s because at that time the metallurgy was such that you couldn't turn very high RPM in the engines, for example. So most of the engines that were done at that time on on racing cars, which is where my real interest is because racing cars are always leading the, the design edge of stuff. So those cars of that period were sometimes 20 liters or 15 liters or 17 liters inside. So they were these huge engines, and the only way they could get any power out of them was go large cubic inches because they couldn't turn very high RPM. So uh, these uh, these Frenchmen, uh, they were a bunch of garage mechanics, really, that worked for Peugeot, but they were also very, very skilled in their thinking. And... Uh, Upstairs, of course, there was a very, very educated group of designers that worked for Peugeot, and these guys were simply aghast that these garage mechanics downstairs wanted to design a race car to uh, represent the company. But uh, you were talking a little bit about Hispano Suiza, and Mark Birkett, who had worked for uh, as the lead designer for Hispano Suiza, uh, was building probably some of the most advanced cars of the day in Spain, uh, just like uh, Rolls was doing in England uh, with Rolls-Royce. So those were the two leading cars, along with uh, Mercedes, uh, of, of the great cars of that era. In other words, uh, they were thinking about things that, that nobody else was working with. Everybody else was working with materials that, and engineering uh, experience that was available to them, and they weren't thinking very far ahead. But uh, the, the changes were occurring so quickly at that time in terms of what machining was capable of and what metallurgy was coming along. Uh, it was just, everything was changing. And the interesting thing was is that all of the people that were involved in aircraft design, automotive design, and marine design all worked very, very closely because whatever power came out in either of those areas uh, transferred. So there were as many as 50 or 60 different companies in Paris at that time that were designing engines because it was a wide open field. And of course, we went through the same thing here in the, in the early 1900s and 20s. We had 150 uh, automobile companies. And over time, each of those were absorbed by another one. And we finally ended up you know, with the big three. But that's the way everything starts out. There are people that are doing all kinds of stuff, and you see that repeating now in the electric car business. There's there's a dozen guys out there or more that are seriously building electric cars, and in time, I think we'll end up with maybe four or five. Well, now that you brought up electric cars, and you're a pretty serious internal combustion engine kind of guy, and so am I, I have a, I still have 
I'm not warm and fuzzy to electric motors, okay? I know there's alternatives out there, and I'm seriously not warm and fuzzy to the fact that they're trying to force it down our throats. Share your thoughts on it. I'm absolutely convinced that, uh, you know, I was didn't believe that I was going to get involved with uh, electric cars. But uh, now that I've had a chance to, to drive a couple of them, I'm really impressed. They're incredibly advanced. Uh, the performance is as good as anything out of any internal combustion stuff. So all of the great things that... that that we admired and loved in internal combustion engines, you know, and the sound and the smell and the vibration and all of those things that, that sort of transferred to us as a, as a, uh, the tactile feel of what an automobile should be are not going to be there anymore. And uh, if you have a chance to go out and drive, you know, any of the new cars, I mean, I've driven one of that new Mustang E's. I haven't, Ford hasn't built a car of that quality in years. It's the most fantastic automobile in terms of performance, its fit, its finish, its quality, and everything. You can't help but be impressed with it. So we've just entered a whole new era. Um, it's it's difficult for a guy that out of my era who had a great love for cars of the classic area and loved internal combustion engines, but I just have to look at that and say, that was that era, this is this era. And as I look back on history, every different era that we went through, the guys that were in that era were as excited and as passionate about what they were doing as the guys that are going on building stuff today. So it's just, it's history repeating itself, and you don't get really a feeling of this until you get to be a guy my age, and you can look back and see that I've been through a couple, three eras, and wish I'd seen some of the early ones in the 1900s or the, or the 20s when the guys were racing on the board tracks, or the 30s, or, or the great Indianapolis area of the 50s when the guys run all the front-engine roadsters. But times change, and you just have to accept what's going on. You can't go backwards. So accept what's there, absorb it, and use it as well as you can. Okay, well, now, uh, let me just digress here for a second. Okay, now, we, there's, sure. they're ex- experimenting with hydrogen engines, which has been around since, you know, since World War II. They're experimenting yeah. with synthetic fuels, which have been around since World War II. So, and where I'm going with this, and I know how you are politically because we're on the same page, and it's kind of like, okay, and, and I did, a, I did a, uh, an appraisal. I was doing a, a brassier car of the turn of the century, okay? And it led yeah. me, and I brought this up at, this, at the seminar with Bill Warner and Miles Collier, and I said, it brought me to Ormond Beach, labeled the birthplace of speed. Back then, yeah. they had electric cars, steam cars, gas cars, uh, cars running, and other f- forms of fuel and stuff like that. And everybody was yeah. optimistic and enthusiastic about, well, you know, Whatever floats your boat, so to speak, you know? So you had you had all of this. Where I have an issue with it today is like they're saying, nope, electric is the only way to go, nothing else. We're all, all the manufacturers are talking about, you know, 2025, 2028, 2030, 2035. So all we're going to have is electric car. There's no mention anywhere of alternative fuels or alternative power sources. And, and this is kind of where I take an issue with the whole thing i don't i don't i don't i have a problem with that i I, I, electric cars are fine but what if i don't want electric car what if i want synthetic fuel what if i want hydrogen what if i want if if if, you know and i know what you're going to say markets are going to dictate what prevails 
as in the case well, with the internal uh, combustion again, engine. Again, it's the practicality of what the infrastructure will allow you to do. Oh, that too, That's yes. One of the main problems right now with electric cars is there's no way that we can get enough power out to all the neighborhoods if we're all electric cars. You can't, there isn't enough power available going through the lines to refill those cars every night. So we are still going to have internal combustion engines for the next 15 to 20 years. Okay, so that's at least, at least my lifetime and yours. <laughs> yeah, yep. No, and, and the thing is that those engines now are so clean that, you know, you, you can't say that they're a, 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 a polluting uh, device anymore because they run extremely clean. So we're going to continue to have it, and as long as that we have control of our own fuel here in the United States and we don't have a political situation which is trying to cut it off and give it to China or give it to Russia or whatever is going on politically on the world stage, the internal combustion engine is going to be with us for a long time. Okay, good. Now, let's go back to uh, design. Um, We talked earlier about some of the cars that were at Amelia Island. One of the cars that was there was this cute little airplane-looking thing by Gordon Burick. And I asked you about Gordon Burick, and I was also told, I was informed by Steve Pastiner told me, that he was an instructor at the Art Center. So go ahead and elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, are you... Uh, are, uh, wait a minute. Um, Gordon Burick, okay. He, Gordon uh, Burick did the cord, yeah. And he also did that. One, there was some little funny little car there that uh, they brought up on the field. There, it looked like a little bit of an like a little three wheeled airplane looking kind of thing. Did you oh, see I, that? I, I, I may have missed that one, Robert. I don't know specifically what uh, car that Gordon did that uh, was a three wheel thing. Well, anyway, so it was there. But where I'm going with this is that Gordon Burick was a uh, uh, a f- well known, fa- fabulous automobile designer. But he also taught at the Art Center, which I didn't know for a short period of time. And uh, and we were talking about this earlier. I yeah, thought, I thought you were talking about our English designer <laughs> Gordon, who designed you know uh, the F1 and the, you know the, the current. Uh, great cars that are coming out of England right now. So uh, we may have missed on that particularly, but I don't remember Gordon Durick ever teaching at Art Center. Oh, really? Okay. Well, anyway, but we did ref- we did talk to him, talk about him a little bit, and, and, and you were kind of like pretty impressed with some of the work that he did back in the uh, 30s and 40s. So do you want to touch... No, absolutely. He was definitely one of the one of the great designers of that, of that particular era. And when we were talking about Gordon, I thought we were talking about our modern Gordon, and who I think is probably the best automotive design engineer out there right now. So uh, we have had two two different Gordons. <laughs> okay, well, touch base on Burek, you know, and and what you know about some of his work in the past. Well, of course, I mean, the, his classic cars is the is the Cord, you know, the right. NA12 Cords, and absolutely beautiful stuff that was completely set apart from everything else that was being built at the time, and that's uh, they still stand out as you know, great great classic cars. I mean, you can if you had a, a Cord that was really working mechanically today, it's as handsome an automobile as anything out there. And it was very advanced at the time. Front-wheel drive, hideaway headlights, automatic transmission, yeah. electric transmission was really a sophisticated car. Right. Absolutely. 
You were at General Motors. When you were there, uh, I know you had worked with Bill Mitchell, but was Harley Earl still around? Yes, absolutely. The, I was there for the transition of uh, Harley Earl to Bill Mitchell. Okay. That occurred about 1956-57. And, of course, Mitchell had worked for Earl for some 27 years, I mean, as his right-hand man. And, you know, it was just, it was difficult for me to believe because I started working at Jim when I was 19 and realizing that this guy, my new boss, Bill Mitchell, had been there my entire lifetime, you know, and had gone through the whole development of the automobile from the early, you know, 20s automobiles. And he was such a passionate, enthusiastic guy about cars. And he was a great leader. And of course, he'd been a designer himself. And he was smart enough to realize that, again, we were going through changes. And he was picking up the best that he could out of the young guys that were coming along and using whatever he could to uh, to create a whole new line of cars. And I think that the Mitchell era was probably the, the high point of General Motors' design. Now, just so many good ones. Okay, and let's just touch base on Harley Earl. Harley Earl actually was very was a very notable designer, and he started back uh, like in the late teens through the twenties, and ultimately, I guess he de- he he designed for Cadillac, and he did some other um, custom body stuff. But he's well, kind. He started out. He was the son of a of a custom body builder out in the Los Angeles area. Oh, really? And if and at that time, these uh, this custom body builder that he was working for was building all of these exotic cars for the Hollywood stars, and and so he was again a, a thinker of, of advanced design, and uh, it was when. Uh, a, a top General Motors executive came out to visit a Cadillac dealer in Los Angeles and saw some of the young Harley Earl's work and brought him back to GM and set him up in what they call the the color and art studio at that time. And of course, this outraged all the engineers at General Motors at that time because this guy came in and was going to design what the cars were going to look like for the future. And basically bypass what all these engineers have been doing. And Earl was really smart enough to realize that the, the real importance in cars is that you had to separate them according to uh, what people were going to buy, what their uh, ability to, to buy was. So they'd start out with a Chevrolet and move up to a Buick or an Oldsmobile and you know go on up through to Cadillac. So he separated and... and created styling it was really fashion design it wasn't anything to do with function it was to separate the look and the status of particular uh areas of of people's ability to uh own cars and and whatever their social status was so basically the underlying part of the car the mechanical was pretty much all the same but the exterior was the styling and the marketing and 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 setting the the levels for- exactly yeah that's what Earl did I mean he created he created automotive design from the standpoint of of high fashion okay he was he was not a guy that was into building a functional automobile um, the way sort of I am you know I'm, I'm sort of a function type guy an engineering type guy he was very very much uh, a man who understood 
of fashion design and created, you know, different looks for different cars based on the same engineering uh, that was available at the time. So the chassis were similar, the engines were similar, but it was the exteriors that he made so different uh, that, that really set General Motors apart and, and, and made all of these different cars look so different. So when they first came out with um, prototypes and experimental-looking cars, would you say that, and somewhere I was reading, that actually Harley Earl was the one that actually started that whole concept for, for, all, for all manufacturers? Yeah. Yep. No, no, he was the first guy to do the concept and did the Motorama shows. Okay. And uh, that, that didn't exist up until that time. The only thing that we'd seen in Europe in that time were the Concours d'Elegance, where the bodybuilders would bring up these custom-built bodies. And, of course, in those days, if you were wealthy, you went to a manufacturer and you bought your chassis, and then you selected which bodybuilder would build the body for you, and you'd go to that person, and they would build a custom body for you on that chassis. Okay. Now, given that you know the, the Americans were in the market, the Europeans were in the market, specifically the French and the Italians, and in some cases the British cars, in terms of styling, where do you think some of the most exotic styling came from, let's say during the 30s and 40s? Was it, was it Italy? Was well, it, it France? Spain? Well, France, absolutely. You know, uh-huh. The French were, were the leaders in the automotive and engineering from the 1900s, probably through oh, the 20s and into the 30s. And at that point, uh, we began to see the emergence of the fine engineering of the German things and the styling that came out of Italy. And, you know, the Americans were way, way behind all that until uh, the whole styling thing came along with with Earl. But uh, things were really, really way, way ahead in Europe. And it, it was wonderful to go to the shows over there because you'd see some really, really great designs. And that, again, that changed in eras. I mean, the French phased out, uh, you know, it, into World War II, and then after that it was pretty much the Italians that came uh, into resurgence, you know, with the top guys like Scaglioni or, or uh, Berton or... Ghia or Pininfarina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all of the great design houses at that time were in, in Italy. And, of course, when we were working in JM, I mean, we were always looking over to what was going on in Europe, and it stuff was fabulous. But the thing that really amazed me is that we were doing equally as good things within General Motors styling, but management was so behind the idea, I mean, behind in their ideas of what was acceptable, they wouldn't accept any of these great designs that came out. So consequently, it looked like the Europeans were always far ahead of what was going on, but in truth, there was some great, great stuff that was going on, and it was really Mitchell that came along in 1957 and finally broke it out and said, okay, we're going to build all this great stuff on our own, and that's why he was such a great leader in in creating that, and he had a great staff of guys underneath him that, you know, led the different studios, And but as a leader and a director... Uh, it couldn't have been better. He really broke away from all the traditional stuff that had been done. Even though it was even it was great for its time, all the Harley Earl stuff was great for its time, but the era had changed, and when Mitchell came in, he brought in probably the best era of General Motors design ever. Would you say 
there's a difference. If I said you're an automobile stylist and you're a designer, are those two different peoples, two different? Yes, completely. Okay. Uh, uh, the word stylist is pretty much has to do with fashion design. Okay. So and Harley he, Earl was a stylist. He was a stylist, yes. Okay. Absolutely. And Bill Mitchell was a stylist as well. Okay. And um, the, 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 the real... The real hardcore designer guys are the guys that are out there um, working with the engineering, trying to make cars as efficient as they possibly can within the uh, aesthetic design things. So uh, anybody that steps away from what's currently in fashion probably doesn't look too good. And I mean, I went through that whole thing with the Daytona Coupe when I first, you know, wanted to propose that car to the guys in the shop at Shelby's. I mean, that thing looked so strange that they all refused to work on it. They thought it was just the ugliest-looking thing they'd ever seen and wouldn't want to work on it. But, of course, as soon as we got the car running and it went out there and it went fast, it was instantly a good-looking car. You know, it, it, because at that point, in, in judging the function of an automobile, everything was by the stopwatch. And if you could come up with something that was faster than anybody else, it became a good-looking car because it epitomized speed. Well, if you look at it, I mean, granted the car, uh, you guys built the car, and a couple were built in Italy, but it does have an exotic European look to it. And it's I think it's gorgeous. I mean, the Ferrari well, GTO it, was out it, at it the time. Oh, it's, it's accepted that way. It's, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's got its own place in history. But believe me, at the beginning of that car, it was considered so strange looking with that chopped off tail and the weird roof line on it. I mean, it, it people just said, you know, God, that's just awful looking. You know, I don't want to be involved with anything like that. And I mean, here we, I had, you know, the top fabricating guys in, in Southern California working for Shelby, you know, under, under Phil Remington, who was our chief engineer there. And uh, they, they just didn't want to have anything to do with it. So the car was built off in the corner by pretty much uh, a kid that came in from New Zealand, a guy named John Olson, who was just, you know, over the moon to be working at Shelby's. And because he didn't belong to the California group, you know, he wasn't accepted yet. Uh, they kind of gave him the project to do. So he ended up building most of the car and became the crew chief on the car, along with Ken Miles and myself. And we built the car off in the corner. And really, nobody paid any attention to it. They just thought it was a dumb-looking car. And so when we took it out to test, there wasn't even very much interest in it. And, of course, we get out there, and the thing was a rocket ship. And, you know, Miles, he didn't even run 20 laps. He says, we're done testing. Get this thing back to the shop. We'll finish it up. You know, this is the best race car that we've got. We can go beat Ferrari with it right away. And at that point, you know, he told Shelby, and Shelby came down and told all the guys in the shop, he said, I don't care what you guys thought last week. As of today, this is going to be our lead project, and everybody's going to work on it, and these are the times. And when he showed everybody the times, that the car chun. And believe me, this is the exact same chassis underneath. All that got changed was the body. It went from 160 miles an hour to about 185. You know, and its fuel efficiency went up 20%. So that alone instantly convinced everybody that, you know, we had a winner 
And everybody dived in, and all of a sudden it became a good-looking car, and everybody loved it. But, boy, prior to that point, believe me, nobody wanted any part of it. And it won the 1965 World Manufacturers Championship. Well, actually, it it would have won it in 1964 if we'd gone to the last race, which was at Monza, Italy. And uh, Ferrari knew that if he had had to compete with us there, he would have lost not only the race, but he would have lost the championship and would have lost the entire respect of of the Italian populace because he was expected to win. I mean, he'd been the champion car in the world since 1961. So for five years, nobody had ever come close. Aston Martin hadn't come close. Jaguar hadn't come close. Maserati hadn't come close. And even Ford had come out with a new, you know, Lola Mark VI, which turned into the GT40. Nobody could get close to Ferrari. And, you know, we rolled up with a $1.98 special that we built in 90 days and smoked them. <laughs> and uh, just, you know, blew his doors off, and nobody could believe it. And that and was history. Got, yeah, and we got down to our last race, and he went to the Auto Club d'Italia and, uh, and had him cancel the race. And at that point, he, he because we had, had blown up, you know, we had a fire at Daytona. We didn't get any points there. So as the season went along, we were neck and neck on points. And because we didn't finish at Daytona, he had, I think, six more points than we did uh, if we, when we were going into Monza. And, of course, if we had won there, we would have you know, won nine points, so we would have won the championship by three points. Pete, we're up against the clock. We will have to finish the story another time, but I want to thank you very much for coming on the show this evening. And uh, you take care. Great story, Pete. Good to hear from you again, and look forward to seeing you in the near future. Thank you very much, Peter. Okay, you bet. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Winning Cars. My special guest, Peter Rock, the legendary designer of the Ford Daytona. Shelby Dotano. Hey, in the meantime, don't forget, every Tuesday night here between 7 and 8 p.m. on Tantalk Radio Network for the most fascinating and legendary names in motorsports, Nostalgic Winning Cars. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.